Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The word of the Lord. Following Jesus means saying no and saying yes. Scholars call this text that uh, Danielle just read, The Turn. It's a change of pace 
and focus in the Gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters, as you've heard from the video, were all about, uh, well, really two things. Miracles, miracle after miracle on the back roads of Galilee. Back roads because the crowds were so massive and paparazzi so thick that Jesus had no options but to stay off the beaten paths. And so in the back roads of Galilee, he's raising 12-year-old dead girls to life. He's calming storms on the Sea of Galilee with the movement of his vocal cords. He's feeding crowds of thousands from Happy Meals. And he's casting out legions of demons from a man and throwing them into a herd of pigs. The pigs run down the hill and end up in the water as floating bacon, and the village owner politely asks them to leave. It's incredible, and it's asking you, who is this man and what is this power? And then in between the miracles, there's these, what should we call them, audacious claims. In the first chapter, he talks about the Sabbath, and he says, oh yeah, the Sabbath, um, that's from me. You're welcome. It's this idea of claiming to be Lord over time and the way we live and the way we keep time, measure it. That's from Jesus. And then the next chapter, he makes this statement. He says, well, what's easier for me to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. And in that, implying that every sin you and I and every person has ever committed has ultimately been against him. Miracles claims. But here in our text today, there's a turn. From this point on, The pace slows way down, and Jesus is walking to one place, Jerusalem, and it's as if we're with him on every step, and the whole focus becomes his death. The next eight weeks, the next eight chapters are going to be death talk on a death walk. The whole plot An emphasis and meaning of Jesus' life is his death. And that's not exactly the news we were hoping for because he says to you and me, follow. When we left off last fall in Mark, it was in the middle of this conversation. After all these miracles and claims, the disciples, Peter speaking for them, finally begin to see who Jesus is. And Jesus says, you, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son, the living God. And now Jesus says, the Son of Man must now suffer and die. Now Jesus' language there is very provocative. You'll remember from last fall, the Son of Man, it does not only mean that Jesus was a human being born of a human parent. Even more, it's a title from the Old Testament. Jesus is wanting us to think about Daniel chapter 7, when it says in a vision that Daniel had, there's the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, but at his right hand is the one like the Son of Man, who is running and ruling the world. Jesus is claiming highest authority, supreme deity, when he calls himself the Son of Man. Now he's saying the Son of Man, in order to rule and conquer the world, must suffer. And he must suffer at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. These are the most intelligent, educated, uh, uh, religious people of the world at their time. 
Think about that, that Jesus was killed by the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman government by the best and brightest of his day. Jesus says, I will conquer the world, the Son of Man, by dying. Now, you can imagine the disciples, they push back on that. Peter, again, speaking for the disciples, pulls Jesus aside privately. Messiah, come, I need to talk to you about this. What in the world are you talking about? The Messiah, suffering, death. They'd never seen the words Messiah and suffering in the same sentence before. We were going to conquer Rome by power, military, politics, force, crowds, power. And you're talking about dying and suffering? Well, Jesus pushes right back on Peter. In fact, he pulls Peter from the privacy of a a fierce conversation in front of the disciples and (laughs) rebukes him by saying, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Sometimes we pair the claws of the lion. That was not nice, Jesus. (laughs) Get behind. You're not only in the way, you're actively opposing me. Get out of here. And then Jesus, at this point, talks about what it means and what it's going to mean to follow him because he's the Messiah who's walking to his death. So what it means for us who follow him is to follow him with our cross. Following Jesus is saying no and saying yes. Following Jesus is a cross and a resurrection. Following Jesus is ascetic before it's aesthetic. What does it mean to say no? Jesus is going to teach his disciples and you and I. Mark chapter 8, verses 34. Here's the no. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Following Jesus is saying no, and no means denying themselves. What does it mean to deny ourselves? It means to submit all of our agendas to his agenda. It means renouncing the claims that we think we have in our lives. It means saying no to our glands and organs because they tend to be unreliable guides to getting us places that are worthwhile. Renouncing our claims on our lives, saying no to our appetites, our aspirations, our desires, and our agendas. Denying ourselves. Do you know what it's called? It's called Lent. We are about to enter the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day. A little irony there. (laughs) More on that in a moment. Um, Lent is a time when we examine our agendas. When we evaluate our lives to see where there's clutter. 
to see where there's things that we're spending massive amounts of time on that a million years from now we'll look back and say, what were you thinking? And we eliminate that clutter to make more room for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our lives. I read in the Denver Post this week that uh, Valentine's, you should never take your Valentine on a first date to a religious church service. <laughs> they said it might be a little too much, a little, you might get to know more than you want to know about your Valentine. Well, I think that's fake news. What could be more beautiful in a person than seeing them take stock of their lives, evaluate that they're dying, cross on the forehead, and saying, I'm going to make the changes in my life that need to be made. Lent is a time when we understand that we came from ashes and to ashes we are returning. I know it's not popular to talk about death in our culture, but the statistics on death are pretty good. And the truest thing experientially I could say to you today, no matter your age, is that you are dying. So take stock. Ashes and slashes. What needs changed? Where do you need more of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? During this season of Lent, come to our service we start together with ashes, but this 40 days, one-tenth of our life, one-tenth of the year, one-tenth of our life, should be evaluating where are we wasting it. I like the way that Eugene Peterson describes this idea of denying ourselves. We live in a culture that is so determined to eliminate death and weakness from our awareness that it requires deliberate intervention on our part to maintain some intimate touch with this essential reality of our existence. How distorted our imaginations become if we forget, even for a day or so, that we are going to die. Both our Christian scriptures and our traditions insist on facing death as a part of life. We cannot live well if we are not preparing to die well. The old theologians often kept a skull on their writing table to remind them of their mortality. Some monks in the Middle Ages used to sleep in their coffins at night to prevent presuming on another day of life. Go thou and do likewise. We deny ourselves. Following Jesus means saying no, no to our agendas, submitting them all to his. But following Jesus, the no is also taking up a cross. What does it mean to take up a cross? Well, Jesus unpacks that a little further when he says that anyone who wants to save their life must lose it. Now, what's interesting about that particular sentence is the Greek word for life that Jesus used is not the one you would expect. Normally, he describes physical life with the word zoe. We hear it in our English, uh, usually girls named Zoe. It means life. But he uses the word psyche. You've heard that word, psychology, the way we think, particularly the way we think about ourselves. Listen to it again. Anyone that wants to follow Christ must lose their mind. 
They must think differently about themselves. Well, what does that mean? Well, every culture tends to have its values displayed in front of the people which say, if you do this or that, if you have this, acquire that, you will have a psyche. You will have a self. You will have value and identity. In Jesus' day, it was all about having a ton of kids, your retirement plan who could take you, care of you in your old age. It was about crops and barns and land. Now, in our day, it's much more individualized. How does the culture say, you know, you can gain the whole world? Well, with things like this, you got to have a career. You got to have a career that's very satisfying to you, but also gives you status and wealth. And if you have that, you'll have psyche, you'll have life, and you'll have a great identity. Think good of yourself. Or uh, another way in our culture that we often hear uh, people get their psyche is through um, romance. If you just find that one right person out there, man, the stars will light up in your sky. It will be apocalyptic, baby, and you will be fulfilled. Other ways that we get our psyche in our culture is by having the body that everyone else wishes they had. And if you just have the six-pack abs or the, 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 the good body, <laughs> you will be the envy of everyone else and feel so good about yourselves. Jesus says you can get those. You can gain the whole world. But here's the problem. I want you to think with me on this. First problem. It's proven in our culture that the more of those you get, the more of those you want. It will never be enough. It will never satisfy you. More, more, more. How do you like it? How do you like it? The other problem? You can't keep it. You're already losing it. No matter what it is, you are losing it. You can't take it with you. You're already losing your grip on it. Jesus says, there's another way. Try this. Try me. Build your identity, your worth, your psyche on me. Well, what does that mean, Jesus? It means simply this. Jesus says, it's interesting. If you want to save your life, then lose it for me and my gospel. He says, well, what does it mean to lose your life for the gospel? Simply this, make sure that your agenda is much about sharing the gospel in this world. You know, every Christian, every person who's come to know and love Jesus has done that because they understand how much Jesus loves them. Any of you sitting here this morning, you've never heard this before. Do you realize how much Jesus loves you? He voluntarily came for you, voluntarily died to absorb your sins, voluntarily gives you his righteousness so that you can spend the rest of your existence in his face-to-face -face presence. He loves you. And once your heart's been captured by that, it wrecks you. It absolutely turns your life upside down such that that love you've received, you have to now give it away to every person that God brings in front of you. You have to love them with cross-shaped love. And so you, you are courageous, and you take this love everywhere in the world with you to give to those who need it. We love because we've been loved, and he loves us to love others. So that's quite an agenda, and that's what it means 
to carry the cross, taking the cross-shaped love of Jesus into the world. Well, what does it look like? Uh, I came across a story. Here's one story. This one absolutely captured me this week. I wanted to share it with you. You can Google it and read more about it. It's the story of Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl grew up in 1930s in uh, the Confessing Church in Germany. They were the kind of family, her and her brother Hans, where they would sit around the table, they would give thanks for their food, and then they would talk about the Bible verses they were memorizing together as a family. Their parents equipped these two kids really, really well. When Sophie went to college, 1940-41, she went to the University of Maximilian in Munich, Germany. She began to notice in her classes that some of her friends, who happened to be Jewish, would disappear, their seats empty. No one knew why or where they went until they did. And this began to wreck Sophie's heart. So we pick up the story here. Sophie and her brother Hans and three other students joined by one professor at Maximilian University formed a secret group they named the White Rose. From Protestant, Catholic, and Russian Orthodox backgrounds, they shared the convictions of the Christian faith in opposition to Hitler. They imagined the Third Reich as an enormous stone wall of impossibility. As the White Rose, they would discover ways, however small, to knock chips, the White Rose, to knock chips out of this wall. They believed with the optimism of youth that if only their fellow citizens knew the truth about Hitler, things would change and their tangible acts of nonviolent resistance would spark an uprising and end the war. At night, Here's what they did, the White Rose. They painted the walls of the university buildings, declaring in large black letters, down with Hitler, long live freedom. Armed with nothing more than an illegal duplicating machine, the White Rose covertly distributed thousands of illegal flyers, warning, we must bring this monster of a state to an end soon, or Hitler cannot win the war, he can only prolong it. <laughs> They traveled by train to mail anonymous letters so that the flyers would bear postmarks from cities across Germany. With a savvy that today's social media gurus would admire, the tiny group created the illusion of a large-scale movement. Leaders of the Third Reich were desperate to know who was behind the White Rose campaign. The truth came out by chance on February 18, 1943, Hans and Sophie Scholl stood above, high above the university courtyard and opened a suitcase of leaflets over the balustrade. As a blizzard of flyers fluttered down, a janitor saw the brother and sister. He grabbed the pair and consigned them to the Gestapo. Within four short days, Hans, Sophie, and their friend Christoph Probst would be on trial for their lives. How terrified. Sophie must have been. In a private moment, she wrote, I shall cling to the rope God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even if my numb hands can no longer feel it. But in the courtroom, without a single witness called in their defense, she remained composed, clear, and unflinching. The Nazi judge raged and screamed at the young defendants, jumping up again and again in a red-hot frenzy. Standing before him, young Sophie spoke in a calm to declare, somebody, after all, had to make a start. 
What we wrote and said is also believed by many others. They just can't dare express themselves yet. The court's verdict was swift and merciless, death. As they faced their execution by guillotine, Sophie and Hans had only moments to say goodbye to their parents. Holding their hands through the prison bars, Hans reassured them, I have no hatred. I have put everything, everything behind me. Grasping at something, anything to comfort her daughter in this heart-rending farewell, Sophie's mother, Magdalene, said, Remember, Sophie, Jesus. To which Sophie replied, Yes, but you must remember Jesus too, Mom. The prison warden overheard Christoph say to his friends, I didn't know that dying could be so easy. In a few minutes, we'll meet again in eternity. What's your wall? Where are you chipping? Where are you saying no to the agendas of the world and breaking down the walls? Where is your wall? You know, I thought of another wall this week. I've been wanting to say something about this. I've been praying long on this. And it's this. How should Waterstone, and particularly the men of Waterstone, respond to the Me Too movement? This wall that's up in our culture of power and sexual harassment and sexual abuse. What should be our response, specifically men? I know women will have to give a response. Today, I just want to focus on the young boys and the young men and the men of Waterstone, what should we do to break down this wall? I couldn't put it any better than in a reading this week when I, I came from James K.A. Smith, who teaches at Calvin College in Michigan. It would be easy to play the public in here for men to congratulate themselves for never having groped or assaulted or harassed the women around them. That's not nothing, of course. But I'm not sure we deserve any moral praise for not being monsters. To the contrary, Jesus undercuts the moral lines of self-congratulation we tend to draw. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus admonishes in the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So even if I haven't been an abuser, how have I contributed to systems and structures that have belittled women? What have I done to resist the ethos of locker rooms and boardrooms and conference rooms that effectively carve women up into body parts to be coveted and acquired? How have I encouraged testosterone-fueled environments that marginalize women's gifts and voices? When does my appreciation of beauty veer into a leering objectification? The way for men to respond to this conversation is neither defense 
nor protest of one's own virtue. Our response should be a long, hard look at our own behaviors, patterns, and assumptions, especially when we are leaders or parents who have the power to shape the ethos that shapes those around us. Listen to the Me Too stories. Be prepared for heartbreak. Stand alongside in solidarity and empathy. Thank them for their courage. Don't try to explain it or defend it or minimize it or solve it. Lament with those who lament and fight the injustice. Following Jesus means saying no. It means a cross. It means an ascetic life. All agendas submitted to his. But as you know, cross-carrying is heavy. Heavy. Where do we get the strength and the energy to carry a cross? We get it from the yes. Following Jesus means saying no, and following Jesus means saying yes. The yes is the strength of the no. What's the yes? Ah, that's the transfiguration. These two stories also are hinged, and you can't look at the one, take up your cross without the other, the transfiguration. You must have the cross and the crown in order to follow the king. I like how Mark inches us into it with Mark 9, verse 1, one of the most cryptic verses in the gospel. He says, and he said to them, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. What does that mean? That means you got to go read the next passage of the scripture. It means that Peter, James, and John are going to get a taste of what it's like to be resurrected on the last day when Jesus comes back. And it's that foretaste of glory that helps us lift the cross. Let's look at it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. It's probably Mount Hermon. I think we have a picture of Mount Hermon up there. Looks like Mount Massive. Except I think Mount Hermon's only about 4,000 feet, three or 4,000 feet. Back to the text. That was free. <laughs> Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. I'm always impressed with Mark's economy of words. This massive event where Jesus is transfigured, it's like three words in the Greek. And it literally says Jesus was morphed. It's passive. It's something that happened. The father did. He kind of lifted the veil of mortality for a second off of Jesus to see his preexistent glory, to see his coming future glory. It's, he's still human, but he's human in glory. It's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2 when it says that in order for Jesus to come to us and we could see him and live with him, he had to empty himself of that glory. But for a moment, it's back on. Burning, gas-guzzling glory, burning purity of Jesus' essential nature being outwardly expressed. He was transfigured. 
His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. It's interesting, Elijah and Moses, the great prophet and the great receiver of the law, the law and the prophets, all of them pointing to Jesus. So what you have here in this moment is Jesus in full glory and Jesus in full testimony. This is the Son of God in all of his glory and fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. Elijah and Moses are witnesses. And they were talking with Jesus, but just like that, they're gone. Verses 5 through 7. Peter said to them, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. Now, I want to defend Peter here a little bit. He probably learned in Sabbath school the account in Exodus 24 when the cloud moved over the mountain. And indeed, the glory of God was so pure and holy that if anyone were to approach it, they would be destroyed on the spot because God is that holy and we are not and so Peter's reflecting this voice in this cloud and saying, boy, if we are going to approach God, there needs to be priests and sacrifices and ways of approach or we're going to be killed by that glory of God. So while I can defend Peter, Mark can't. He said, basically, they were so scared they didn't know what to say. <laughs> then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What's happening in this transfiguration? The veil is removed. We're getting a foretaste of what's coming for us. What's happening here is what we call worship. Worship. Two things happen in worship. The first, we hear the Father saying again and again, listen to him. Listen to him. That's what worship is. That's why at Waterstone... You know, and sometimes it seems long, and you wonder, why, why in the world would you do this? But we take a lot of time to read the Bible to one another. It, it, Paul said in the early church, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Why? Because that's listening to Jesus. And we continue to listen to Jesus. Those of you who are here and you're seeking you want to know who Jesus is? Go to the original sources. Participate in our Steal a Bible program. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read the Gospel of John. Go to the primary source. Don't take my word for it or any other word for it. Take the source's word, the Bible. I remember last century, there was a chaplain in Harvard named uh, George Buttrick, and he used to have these disillusioned college students come in to his chaplain office in Harvard, and they'd say, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And Buttrick's response was, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in anymore. I probably don't believe in him either. We go to the source, the original sources to know who Jesus is. And for those of you who are believers, are you getting the word of God into your life? Again, that denying other things, but bringing in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you have a Bible reading plan? One of the great ones I would recommend, this video that you saw earlier is from thebibleproject.com. They have an app that's called Reading Scripture, and it'll take you through the entire Bible in a year with all these cool videos that'll explain what you're reading. Try it. Start it. doesn't matter if you do it in a year or not, but just get the Bible into your life. Why? Because worship is listening to Jesus. 
That's the first part of worship, listening to Jesus. The second part of worship is a foretaste of glory. Every time we gather here, we are foretaste of glory. What's to come? That we too will be Jesus, and he won't be just this sense that's beside us side by side. He'll be someone in front of us face to face, and we will be with him in full glory. Remember when we went through Revelation last year that we learned that in heaven and the new heavens and new earth come down, there'll be no sun, S-U-N. Why? Don't need it. Jesus is there. Jesus is the sun, S-O-N. The lamb is the light. And we will see his full glory and that will illumine everything that we are and we do in the new heavens and the new earth. That taste of what's coming is what helps us carry the cross now. And my question to you is, does it work? You know, this moment, transfiguration, was really cherished by the early church. I mean, we see it in Peter when he writes uh, in a letter later, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You know, when you compare what happened in the transfiguration with Jesus' baptism, which is when the cloud also came over and the Father spoke, there's a difference. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, when Jesus is equipping his disciples, what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The first voice from heaven was to equip Jesus for three years of ministry. The second voice of the Father from heaven was to equip us in the work of the church because cross-carrying is heavy. And so what we need continually is a foretaste of the glory that is to come. Does it work? That's your call. That's your decision. So, brothers, sisters, friends, does the promise of future glory with Jesus motivate you? Let me ask it this way. Is that enough for you? This week, I attended a funeral of a loved one connected to Waterstone. And there they sang this hymn, and I bet I've sung this hymn a hundred times. I grew up in the church, church brat. But this hymn wrecked me. I don't know, for some reason, maybe it's because we're studying for this time together this morning, this hymn absolutely wrecked me, and I wept, and I realized that God is just wooing me and wooing all of us along to carry the cross a little farther because what awaits us is going to be so indescribably good that he wants to give us to us now in small doses. But it's enough. It's enough. Here's what we sang. Would you say it with me? On a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best 
for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.